I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file sharing and personal data storage company that allows users to access their content from any of their devices. Drew co-founded Dropbox with his MIT classmate, Arash Ferdosi, in 2007. Prior to starting Dropbox, Drew ran another startup, an online SAT prep company called Accolade. He incidentally scored 1600 on his SAT. Drew is from Acton, Massachusetts. Welcome. Thank you. There has been a great evolution in storage from storing files of paper on a shelf to burning CDs to using memory sticks to now storing things in the cloud. How does Dropbox fit into all this? Yeah, we think about the things you put in Dropbox are the things that kind of were things you would store in your house, right? So you'd open your front door, you put your mail down on the table, uh, photos on the coffee table in the living room, work documents in your briefcase, a filing cabinet somewhere with your financial and health information. All that stuff lives on servers. All that stuff now uh, lives on services like Dropbox. And so we all need our kind of digital home in the cloud. And we think of what we're building as kind of this magical home for all your most important information. From the photos on your coffee table to, you know, your photos in the cloud, there's been a lot in between. Right. Yeah, it's just a mess. Mm -hmm. When anytime some new technology comes along, the old stuff doesn't go away. You're taking all these pictures on your phone, but all your old computers, there's still photos stuck in all those places. And you still have the shoebox under your bed and the, you know, the photos on your fridge. And it's kind of up to you to kind of duct tape all this stuff together. We talk about storage in the cloud, but there are servers that are actually helping to maintain this. Where do your servers live? So there's a lot of them. They live on both the west and east coast. You know, in case anything happens on in any place, your stuff will always be safe. Since the beginning, we, we manage and buy and operate a bunch of our own servers. And then we've also used the public cloud, uh, which is refers to uh, places like Amazon. They have uh, Amazon Web Services, and they rent out. They buy a bunch of servers and manage them and, and uh, rent them out to companies like ours. And that made it really easy for us to get started because you know, back then we couldn't afford to spend tens of millions of dollars on equipment, and we could just get started with a credit card. When did you first think of the idea for Dropbox? Well, it was... Uh, out of personal frustration. And one day I forgot my thumb drive. I was uh, taking a trip from Boston to New York. I justified this in my head because I was going to spend the weekend there by thinking of, oh, if I take the bus, I can have, you know, four and a half hours in each direction. And so nine hours to get all these things done. And so rush to the bus, get on there, have a seat, open up my laptop. And I paused and had that feeling in the pit of my stomach. I just knew that I had left my little thumb drive with all my company stuff on it back at home. And this was these were the days before the iPhone and and kind of thing where if you didn't have anything to do, you really didn't have anything to do. So I had four and a half hours to think about how disorganized I am and and I'm like, I never want to have this problem again. Now there's a lot of like myth founding stories. Is that actually what happened? Or had you been kind of marinating on versions of this even before that momentous epiphany? Well, I had at the time there are all kinds of other services that claim to do this on paper. At MIT I had hacked together a bunch of little tools to try to help me manage this. 
But it was really that bus ride where the first lines of code, I started typing in the first lines of code. Now, you applied to Y Combinator, which is a seed accelerator or an incubator uh, that uh, in exchange for equity, they give you now roughly, I think, $120,000 to help you get your business started. They were a little leaner than we. <laughs> they were. It was more like $15,000. <laughs> like $15, yeah. Right. Paul Graham said to you, well, you need to find a co-founder if we're going to accept you. Right. Now, you had had a, co- a co-founder prior. Uh, he was a Stanford grad, but he couldn't join you because he had a friend who was starting like a competing technology. So you went to Arash, who had gone to MIT, but you didn't know him at MIT. How did how did that it's happen? Kind of a, yeah, long story. Uh, a little bit of co-founder musical chairs. So it turned out, as you said, I had a bunch of people who would have been great, uh, but just timing wasn't right. And I was just complaining to anyone who had listened that I'd need a co-founder. And what happened was a, a friend of mine who I'd also met at MIT named Kyle, he knew Arash. And he's like, you guys should really talk. And so we got together in the student center. I think there was a coffee house on the second floor. And now in retrospect, it's kind of crazy because we spent maybe a sum, like a total of a couple hours together before completely jumping in. And he dropped out of MIT. Yeah, it was wild. So you and Arash uh, completed Y Combinator, and that led you accidentally to another person named uh, Penjman Nozad. Yeah, Penjman Nozad. And he was talking Farsi to Arash because they both happened to be Iranian, and he was taken with your technology. And he was kind of a pivotal person for you very early on because he introduced you to Sequoia, to your first venture capital. Yeah, it was wild. He came, uh, Pejman came running up to Arash after our demo at Y Combinator, but we hadn't really heard of him, but he was very persistent and convinced us to come down and we'd type in the address and we'd part, we'd go down to Palo Alto on University Ave and, and we'd get out of the car and we're like, oh man, we're already running late. This is the wrong place. This is some like rug gallery. But we'd go inside and we're like, hey, we probably have the wrong place, but it's Pejman here. The receptionist's like, oh sure, c- come back here. And you know, you look around, it's just rugs. Um, but we go through this like secret back doorway into this boardroom, and he, we sit down. They serve us Persian tea. We walk mm-hmm. him through a demo, uh, and next thing we know, he's introducing us to Sequoia. Um, he came with us to the first pitch. It was his family's rug company that he was operating from, and he actually said to Sequoia, "Oh yes, you know they're talking to other venture capitalists who want to invest to just move you. things along." And Michael Moritz from Sequoia shows up at your apartment one Saturday morning to say, "Here is your one point two million dollars." <laughs> is that is that uh, accurate? More or less, yeah. They we we go to Sequoia on a Friday, and I get a phone call that night saying, "Hey." Uh, you know, we really like you guys. Next step is usually to have a partners meeting on Monday, but Mike isn't going to be there. Can he come visit uh, on Saturday morning? And I'm thinking, Mike, Mike. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, God, yeah, Mike Moritz, mm-hmm. who's like the godfather of Sequoia. And, yeah, next thing you know, he's in our living room. Mm-hmm. Our boxes literally aren't even unpacked. Mm-hmm. And we're show- walking him through uh, a tour of Dropbox. I want to go back to your Y Combinator application for a moment, because uh, we're talking about raising capital. And they ask you about that on the application. You know, if somebody's interested in buying your company, you know, what would you do? And you'd said, I'd rather, I rather see the idea through, but I'd probably have a hard time turning down a million dollars after taxes for six months of work. Right. But then Steve Jobs offers you nine digits in 2009. How did you come into contact with Steve originally? Dropbox was kind of on their radar. Because you had hacked their system. Uh, The team at Apple had gotten in touch because we did some 
kind of crazy technical acrobatics with the operating system. And so we did this kind of kind of open heart surgery on the, this thing called the Finder, which is what shows you your files, um, which is technically a very difficult thing to do. And, and so they were confused. They're like, how did you guys do that? And we were thinking, why are you asking us? Like, you guys, you aren't, you get, aren't the people who do that like 100 feet away from you? Mm-hmm. Um, that was what started things. And then they wanted to have conversations about maybe buying the company and eventually kind of move up the food chain uh, to Steve. What surprised you about the encounter? Our, our meeting with Steve was really cordial, and, and the encounters usually fell into two buckets. You either got chill Steve or very angry Steve. Fortunately, it, it was the former. He's just like, look, you should join us. And we said, look, we're huge admirers of everything you've done, but we're really having a great time building this company. I'm sure you understand. Uh, and uh, that's when I thought he'd get upset, but he started taunting us a little bit and saying all these reasons why it wouldn't work or, you know, it was unlikely to work and how they were going to have to compete with us and kill us and these kinds of things. But what was fun about it was that it was all kind of done in 15 minutes and he spent the next 45 minutes just talking to us about entrepreneurship and his path. And you know, I was asking him all these questions about why would why did he come back to Apple and he didn't have to do that. And P.S., he comes out with iCloud, which is a competitor right, that, <laughs> to Dropbox, but you knew it was coming because he told you he was coming right. out with, with a cloud-based solution similar to yours. And even at the time, you know, your customer base wasn't obviously what it is today. You have over 300 million users. Right. But at, at the time, it was more like 2 million? It's probably about 2 million. And you acquired those uh, those customers in kind of quirky ways. Uh, one was uh, with referrals, that if a, if a user uh, referred a friend, that they got more storage for free. Yeah. And that was kind of taking a page out of PayPal's playbook. Right. right. If I tell you about Dropbox, you get some free space, I get some free space. We found that that of all the things we tried, that was really effective. Um, and people try to collect space, kind of like points, even if they didn't use it. That quickly became the primary way that people found out about Dropbox. You also made a video in the middle of the night uh, demonstrating the service. Very simple. That really resonated mostly with the tech community. Right. So uh, it was this quick video just narrating the experience of Dropbox. But what we did was we put all these little Easter eggs in the video that people who uh, who frequently went to sites like Reddit or Dig, um, things that that community would understand. And so I learned that from a book called Guerrilla Marketing, which is Mm -hmm. how do you reach people when you have no money? Um, Mm -hmm. And it just took off. Mm -hmm. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people visited in the first day. 75,000 people signed up to try Dropbox. It was Mm -hmm. literally overnight that we built our critical mass. By the way, you said you read it in a book called Guerrilla Marketing, which I'm guessing you read on the roof of your fraternity at MIT, uh, where you got your uh, default M- MBA. Yes. And which I'll get to later. Um, but I want to talk about that video because as I was watching the video, I saw some like very funny names for files laying around. Like you had one file called "People Have No Idea Why They're Doing What They're Doing." <laughs> Did you make up these file names? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you weren't interested in Dropbox. Something like the something in there might catch, catch your attention. So uh, there are all these funny file names. There's uh, XKCD comics. There's a picture of Tom Cruise jumping on a couch. There's uh, references to Obama. He was campaigning back then. We found that it worked. So where do you get your sense of humor from? <laughs> I guess that's a good question. I think you know my uh, my mom has a great sense of humor. My, my both of my parents are are pretty light hearted and funny. 
I have to admit, I kind of fell into using your service because when I was downloading photos from my iPhone one day, Dropbox kind of appeared and I almost had to use it. Now I'm locked into you forever because even though I had your service for free initially, I now have to pay you monthly? Mm-hmm. Monthly, yearly. So you are a Trojan horse in a way. You know, on the one hand, I'm grateful because I know, okay, my photos are safe in addition to the other places I store it. But on the other hand, I'm like, I'm going to have to pay this service for this service ongoing. And that's obviously your hope. Right. How do you navigate that? What percent of the people who use Dropbox pay for this service? Most of the users are free users. Um, but obviously, that's how... That's how we make the model work, is is that if you need more space, you can subscribe. But we have to earn that. And so we're always doing more to make the experience better. And hopefully when you look at your credit card statement, it's one of the things that makes you happy and not sad. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox. We'll hear more from Drew coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file hosting service that allows you to store, share, and access your personal data among any of your devices. Drew graduated from MIT in 2006, and before starting Dropbox, he founded an online SAT prep company called Accolade and created a poker bot, which helps you win at online poker. Who knew? That's right. Are you a poker player? I am. Not a great poker player. Was this like a, a for-profit endeavor or just something that you were kind of having fun reverse engineering software on a, you know, a computer one day? It was a little of both. So I, I love poker, but what was appealing is I, since I was little, I've always loved taking things apart, you know, whether it's online poker or, or all kinds of things. I was able to figure out sort of from the inner workings of how the poker app worked, and I was able to create something where the mouse would move itself and click and figure out what's going on with the game and the artificial intelligence to play. But then, unfortunately, in 2006, poker became illegal or more illegal. And so, you know, I thought to really scale this out would be a lot of different felonies you'd have to commit. Mm -hmm. So I decided to put my attention elsewhere. There's an image or a story I've heard about you going up to New Hampshire to visit your family in their cottage. You have a car full of your computers and wires to work on this poker bot. Can you tell me about just what that looked like? Yeah. So we have a little place in New Hampshire on a lake. And, you know, most normal people like go swimming and canoeing around and things like that. And, you know, I drive by and you know, my mom's like saying, like says hello, and I'm dragging three monitors out of my trunk and setting them up on, uh, it's like I put them on the stove and I was hooking everything up and my mom was like, what are you doing? <laughs> but she knew, this is one of many kind of schemes and projects I've had. What was your mother's view of that sort of ingenuity? She She's always found it just funny and, you know, just entertaining to watch all of my, 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 me and my siblings. My parents, I'm, I'm really lucky, and they've always been supportive of everything I've done. They find all of this just pretty funny. What do your parents do? So my mom, uh, she just retired. She was a high school librarian mm-hmm. um, at my high school, and my dad is a staff engineer at Draper Lab in Cambridge. I heard that you've been coding since you were five years old. That's right. What, is that, what does that mean? How does a five-year-old code? So... I was lucky, and when I was in diapers and sort of running into the living room, I had a my dad had bought a PC Junior, and so I would even before I could really read or do anything, I was kind of mashing the keys, and 
eventually got to the point where my dad was able to show me how to play games and and write my first lines of code. Did you get outdoors a lot though as well? Yes, yes. We were lim- we were my siblings and I were limited in our computer time, so we'd have to take turns and be normal mm-hmm. <laughs> for the rest of the time. We alluded to this at the beginning, uh, but your mom was a librarian, and, and did it kind of resonate with you that what you're doing is kind of a, a later form of library work? We think about that a lot. Uh, we store a ton of information in Dropbox, as you can imagine, with hundreds of millions of people using the service. And, and every day, people store probably dozens of libraries of Congress. Mm-hmm. This is every day. I want to talk about a speech that you gave at MIT. You talk about the circle of five, which basically uh, is the five people in your life you spent most time with. Can you describe that briefly? So I think there was a quote I read somewhere that you're the average of the five people you uh, that you spend time with the most. It's an interesting observation for me because it prompted me to do a lot of different things. It prompted me to move out to San Francisco because that's where that's kind of what Hollywood is the, to the entertainment industry, Silicon Valley and San Francisco are to internet companies. And when I think of what uh, some of the most important, sort of in retrospect, what some of the most important things I've done has really been going to places like MIT, surrounding myself with people that push me in sort of friendly competition. And one of those people uh, for you was Adam Smith, who uh, was a, a classmate of yours from MIT. And you say that you would code in your boxers <laughs> at your fraternity because the air conditioning didn't work. And all of a sudden, you know, he's getting serious and he's getting venture capital and he's getting flown around in helicopters. And that was just the kick in the butt that you needed. Can you describe that? Yeah. So Adam started a company but almost exactly a year before me. And we would spend the summer coding together, and he was working on his company, and I was working on my first company. But very quickly, uh, after that summer, he moved out to California. And next thing I knew, I get this phone call from him saying, hey, this investor, Vinod Kosla, is going to give me $5 million. And Vinod Kosla, for those who don't know... Is the founder, one of the co-founders of Sun Microsystems. He's this really legendary character in in the Valley, and uh, he has a big venture capital firm. And so I was just shocked. I mean, I was super happy for him, but at the same time, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not getting publishers clearinghouse size checks. <laughs> and this is the friendly competition you're talking yeah. about. In addition to talking about, you know, the circle of five, uh, you talk about the tennis ball. What is that? When I was working on my first company, after a while, I sort of lost steam. Um, and I thought something's wrong with me or like, why can't I work hard? But then actually the poker bot was the project that reminded me that I can that I was I was obsessed with that thing. And when I think of that kind of obsession, I thought of our dog growing up, uh Whimsy, when when you would throw a tennis ball, she would just go bounding after it, like bashing through stuff, just kind of just tongue hanging out, just looking a little bit crazy. And when I think about people who have done really amazing things. It's really kind of that obsession. And and that's what I recognized when I started working on Dropboxes. This is a problem I can be really excited about for a long time. Even though you're young, you're also mindful of kind of your numbered days. And, you know, you you read somewhere that you have basically 30,000 days to live. Uh, So this, I remember this one night right after moving to San Francisco, reading that, yeah, that you live for 30,000 days. And, you know, first I'm like, okay, this is like a clinically (laughs) obvious fact. Um, but on a whim, I just opened up the calculator and and uh, and I typed it in, and I'm like, oh my god, 
like I was 24 at the time or something, and, and I'm like, I'm like 9,000 days down, almost a third of the way through life. That was just kind of a shock to me that, you know, every day we kind of get a ticket until you don't. And so it really caused me to think about how, how do you make every day count? So what's an example of, of how that influences what you're doing? For a lot of life, you spend your time like checking boxes and like getting ready to do things. And uh, when I look at a lot of my friends, a lot of them may have wanted to start a company at some point, but they kind of get trapped. They basically send all these years getting ready to start a company. And then before they know it, they've got kids and a mortgage and they just don't have the flexibility they had. Instead of trying to get ready, I was just like, all right, I'm just going to do this. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file hosting service that allows you to store, share, and access your personal data among any of your devices. You mentioned in your application to Y Combinator that you were in a crowded, hostile, competitive environment and that there were lots of companies trying to do what you were doing. And I actually appreciated your candor in the application. You know, you're saying, yeah, you know what? There's not a lot of barriers to entry, but what makes us different is that we're going to execute carefully. What made you think you could do it better or execute better than others? And why were you not daunted by going into such a crowded sector? What we would say to investors is like, look, if, you know, if any of these things worked, <laughs> like I wouldn't be here. I'd just use that. Tom Cruise in Minority Report, do you really think he's going to be like carrying a thumb drive around? Right? Or like logging into his Gmail to pick up the thing he had like emailed himself. Mm-hmm. Like obviously your stuff would just follow you around. And mm-hmm. that's not our idea. That idea has been around since my parents were kids. Um, but none of us had that. Uh, we had it sort of at school, but then you graduate and it's like back to the Stone Age. And I'm, you know, my, I'm my own IT guy. There, there are a lot of startup ideas that are kind of like that, where it's a terrible idea. Like mobile was like that for a long time. It's just this graveyard until one day, you know, the iPhone comes along and it just works. Or music startups, you know, just didn't work, didn't work, didn't work. Then you have Spotify and Pandora. And so I think if, if the problem is still unsolved, it doesn't really matter how many competitors there are. Because, though, of the competitive space, the costs are so low, and you talk about file sharing just being chapter one of what you're doing. Sure. You're constantly having to innovate, where you're going beyond just being that file sharing service. Well, our space is evolving, and mm-hmm. it's like any other technology. So, I mean, think about your first cell phone. In the beginning, you're like, oh, my God, I can be in my car, and I can be talking. This is like magic. And you're like, okay, how many minutes do I have for my phone calls? Now cell phones do much more than just phone calls. Dropbox is kind of like that, where it's like, oh, I can have my stuff with me wherever I am. I can access it from anywhere. How much space do I have? Now everybody knows that the storage is just an ingredient, and mm-hmm. it's a means to an end. What, but what people are really doing is they want to have everything in one place. They want to share. They want to collaborate. Um, they want to get work done. And so those, th- those are the real problems we're solving. And and things like sync or storage, we don't even really use those words that much because what we're really trying to do is solve the underlying problems. You originally did not have the URL dropbox.com. It was getdropbox.com. And you even started with Evenflow as the name of the company. Can you tell me the story about how you acquired the domain name? It yeah, getting the domain there. name was kind of a crazy... Because somebody else owned yeah. it. Yeah. So uh, we didn't have dropbox.com in the beginning. We had getdropbox.com. Get so kind of a budget <laughs> domain name. How much did you pay for Dropbox ultimately? Uh, it's we, we have to keep that secret, unfortunately. But what happened was there's this guy who lived in Pleasanton, uh, which is near San Francisco. And uh, for literally years, I would, or for the first couple of years I was running the company, I would call him and be like, hey, you know, we're, we're, we have an idea for this thing that we want to build. 
we see that you have Dropbox.com. Can we work something out? And he would say no every time. He's like, and we're like, why? And he's like, oh, I have a project. Uh, and it was clear after call three, four, five, ten that there was no project. And uh, eventually, we got so frustrated that we go downstairs, go to the convenience store, like buy the most expensive bottle of forty dollars champagne <laughs> we could find, and uh, and get in a zip car and drive to his house. Uh, and ring the doorbell, and he's a little shocked, but the crazy thing, he was an entrepreneur, too. And so he sat us down. We tell him a little bit more about what we're doing, and he's, he's like, this is interesting. Let me think about it. And we're like, this is really exciting, awesome. We'll give you stock. We got great investors, all these things. I'm trying to get him interested, and he's like, uh, I'll talk to you in a couple of days. We're like, we'll be back on Monday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, we come back. We're like, you know, what do you think? He's like, no, I'm just going to hang on to it. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, you know, like bequeath it to your children. Like, what is the end game here? And he was just totally unreasonable. And what happened was he ended up putting all these ads on it that would confuse our users. So we actually ended up sort of, you know, rattling our swords and filing a a lawsuit for trademark infringement because it was actually causing confusion. Our, Our users were going to clicking on these ads and he was making all this money off of confusing people. And so you can't do that. So uh, eventually we got back in touch with him. We're like, look, you know, and, and neither of us wants to be in, sort of embroiled in something like this. And finally we were able to, he was able to sell it to us and he probably should have taken stock. He sold it for cash, probably worth a hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just a lot, right. paid him a lot less. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file hosting service that allows you to store, share, and access your personal data among any of your devices. In addition to like customer acquisition and getting venture capital, what was one or two key pivotal moments in the progression of Dropbox in the early days? Really getting uh, people to understand how to use the product. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, we could see in the numbers that a lot of people would sign up and not start using it, um, which is always puzzling. And literally in a given day, you would see a note from someone saying, hey, this is like a godsend. This is the simplest, best thing ever. Uh, and the next email would be like, what is wrong with you guys? You, you need you MIT nerds. Like you need a PhD to figure this thing out. It's totally impenetrable and I, and I hate it. And so what we did was we, we went on Craigslist and offered like 30 bucks or something if you'd come in and and try Dropbox. And, and we just put a camera in there. I had a bunch of music equipment. So we would record people uh, just trying out the product. And we found all of these hidden things that were these stumbling blocks. And it was really simple. We're just like, hey, have a seat. Here's an invite. Here's an invitation email to Dropbox. Go from here to sharing a file with this email address. Zero of five succeeded like they all like failed with prejudice. Like most of them didn't even figure out how to get the thing installed. Is that because of a trouble in the coding? Bugs, I, in, the, bu- bugs in the coding? You know, it's just, it's just kind of unexpected stuff. You know, when, after you install Dropbox, really in, in a sense, it just puts you into this empty folder. Uh, and the only interaction you can have with it is through this little icon in the corner of your screen. And so people didn't notice the icon. They didn't notice that we were putting the folder there. Uh, they were totally baffled as to what this thing was. Uh, and so after that, we made a list of like 80 things that were confusing uh, that we didn't even rec- didn't realize until you know, they're, they're all obvious in retrospect. But mm-hmm. um, And then we were just kind of grinding through them. That really helped to enhance the ease of use. Yeah, which, it was mm-hmm. a pivotal moment for us because I think it's really hard to see through your customer's eyes, right. especially if you're, you know every facet of every line of 
code and know exactly how the thing works. Right. You know, you're almost like screaming through the screen, like mm-hmm. just click, like it's right there. How can you not see it? What are some examples of anecdotes of people actually having success with this service? I think it's really amazing to me how much it sort of feels like it's Dropbox be, has become part of the fabric of of how we do all kinds of things. And, you know, everything from, you know, SNL, you know, mm-hmm. watch the 40, 40th anniversary SNL episode, that's produced in Dropbox. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you turn on music and pretty much every musician I talk to mm-hmm. uses Dropbox uh, or National Geographic, like all the you know, flipping through the beautiful photos they have. That's all in Dropbox. Now, when you say they're using Dropbox, so they're working collaboratively with other people on the files, on the content. Right. And so they're moving big files around. They're collaborating. Um, What are other examples? Someone emailed in. They're like, hey, we use Dropbox uh, at this hospital, and it got flooded, and all of our patients' records were destroyed. But we had a backup in Dropbox, so it literally saved people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, To more mundane or just sort of off-the-wall stuff, to Our first uh, head of marketing was here in New York and visiting her hairdresser. And they're making small talk. She's like, oh, where do you work? And uh, Julia's like, I'm at Dropbox. And the hairdresser, like, dropped her stuff. And she's like, I love Dropbox. It's completely changed my life. And Julia's like, like, what? (laughs) You know, hairdresser, you know, makeup artist, not really the first target market we'd think of. And and Julia's like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, I... I, I do all this production work for this movie. We have to shoot all the scenes out of order, and I got to run around with a clipboard writing down, like, your hair is here, and you're wearing this earring, and your bracelet, and, you know, your sleeves are up. Um, and it's a huge pain because I can't get anything wrong. Um, but now all I do, I have an iPad. All the pre-production footage is in Dropbox. I just see, and when I want to see what were you wearing in the, video, the scene before this, I just look at the scene before it, and it's completely saved you know, hours and hours and hours of my life. Never would have occurred to us right. <laughs> that we're like creating like hairdresser workflow software. And where do you store your data? Oh my God, it's all in Dropbox. All? Yeah, as much as I can. No iCloud? So for like Find My iPhone, uh, I, you know, I use iCloud. You know, really all of us are going to end up using all of these services, and that mm-hmm. creates a new problem. Like mm-hmm. I need like a cloud mm-hmm. to connect my clouds. You love music. How long have you been playing the guitar? Uh, since a senior year in high school. Your band Angry Flannel performs from, from time to time. Yes. Why the name Angry Flannel? We basically had all gotten together. We didn't know each other that well, and we were bickering over the name. And um, we had interviewed a lot of bad singers. And I think afterwards, and everybody was all emotional. And I'm like, 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 what are we here, like Angry Flannel or something? And it stuck. I had a chance to track down Eddie Vedder, who was the lead singer of Pearl Jam. They're investors in Dropbox. So he, he liked the name. He approved. And <laughs> speaking of Pearl Jam, Dropbox was originally called Evenflow, which is a Pearl Jam song. Yes. Tell me about that. I've been a big Pearl Jam fan for a long time. And uh, we were worried because Dropbox.com wasn't available. If I wasn't going to put Dropbox, I had to put something in. So I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan and the... And the first name of the company, our incorporation certificate, still says Evenflow Inc. And in addition to Pearl Jam being an investor, you too is an investor. Yes. Do you secretly wish you were a rock star? I think that would be a pretty good path. <laughs> you know, if I could take a year and like tour or be part of something like that, that would be really fun. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox. Coming up, we'll meet Berta Gonzalez Nieves, co-founder of Casa Dragones. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Even though, like 
I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Berta Gonzalez Nieves, co-founder of the tequila brand Casa Dragones. Casa Dragones is a joint venture between Berta and Bob Pittman, the founder of MTV. Madonna, Martha Stewart, Oprah, and La Bernadette chef Eric Repair are among Casa Dragones' celebrity fans. The first batch of Casa Dragones, about 12,000 bottles, was launched in 2009. Berta grew up in Mexico City. Welcome. Thank you, Jessica. I'm excited to be here. I want to talk first about tequila in general. Could you describe exactly what your tequila consists of? Of course. There's five official classifications of tequila in our appellation of origin. Blanco, joven, reposado, añejo, and extrañejo, and I can say that in English. White, young, rested, aged, and extra aged. For our joven in particular, when we founded Casa Dragones, we set on a quest to produce a true sipping tequila. And we found that the Hoven style was the style that wasn't going to enable us to truly deliver a spirit that invited you to sip and to savior, and that actually paired well with food. Tequila comes from the agave plant. Mm -hmm. I think of, you know, agave syrup as like a, a sugar substitute. But can you describe the agave plant and how you make use of it? Most people think that agave is a cactus. It's not a cactus. It actually belongs to the succulent family, and it's actually closely related to the lily. It's really a very noble plant. In Latin, it means admirable and noble. And the plant is a plant that takes 8 to 12 years in average to be ready to be harvested. And what you're looking for in the plant is you're looking to keep to harvest your plants when they have the most concentration of sugar reductors in the heart of the plants. And then you ferment that and, and or you take the sap from that heart? That's correct. You said it takes, you know, eight to 10 years for the plant to grow. And that's why it's my understanding a lot of tequilas have other sugars in it because the harvesters don't want to wait eight to 10 years. And, and yet your tequila has only the agave sugar. Yeah. I mean, we only produce 100% agave. We are going on the route of producing very small batches that have ex very strict attention to detail to be able to stand on the shelf with categories that have been in the luxury segment for a very long time. Incidentally, um, the flowers of the agave plant are pollinated by a bat. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? There's The plant is pretty incredible. It has a, a diversity of ways of reproduction. The plant actually clones itself from its root and grows hijuelos mm. that then grow around the plant and you wait on average one or two years to actually take the hijuelo and then plant it in a new field. That is the most traditional way of, uh, uh, in our category, mm -hmm. of actually reproducing the plant. If you let the plant grow its uh, stem, which is a 15 to 20 feet long stem that grows a very beautiful white flower at the end, uh, those that is the that is a plant that's pollinated by bats. Do you have an agave plant in your apartment? I don't have an agave. I've tried it, but the the plant really is looking for the right temperature. One of the most important factors is a nighttime climate mm. because it's a mac type plant that does its photosynthesis at nighttime. So it's probably not a coincidence that this nocturnal plant is pollinated by a nocturnal animal. That's correct. I want to switch to your bottling. Can you describe for those who don't see it what the bottles look like and how they're made? When we founded the company, we wanted to really sell Mexican craftsmanship. We uh, tried to get inspiration from all over Mexico and found an exhibit in the Museo de Arte Popular in Mexico City. And they had an exhibit specifically of the history of glass in Mexico. 
uh, we found a very beautiful, a lot of work in apothecary bottles um, and a lot of work in the uh, traditional hand engraving method of pepita. Pepita meaning small seeds. Yes. We took uh, that idea and worked with a local Mexican bottle producer to produce a antique decanter but made modern. Mm-hmm. And all of this is done by hand. In, in addition to the glass itself, which has this pepita engraving, um, it's also uh, each bottle is hand-signed. Uh, can you describe that? Because we're a small batch producer, uh, we number every bottle by hand and obviously with a date of when we bottled it uh, and produced a specific batch. And uh, and every bottle is hand-signed by, we're two maestro tequileros, is Benjamin Garcia and Berta Gonzalez. Uh, Benjamin was the first person that I... Um, that I convinced to be part of the team. And when we did our first batch, we realized that we both had the same initials. Mm. His name is Benjamin Garcia and mine Berta Gonzalez, so we didn't have to fight over who is signing the bottles. Mm. So depending on who's in, in, on, in our production facility, either one of us is signing the bottles. The brand is only uh, since 2009, but the name itself, Casa Dragones, has a deep history. Dragones refers to the Queen's Cavalry, which lived in the town of San Miguel de Allende, which is kind of your the, the cultural heart of the company. Can you explain the history of Dragones yeah. in Mexico? The Dragones uh, were that were living in San Miguel de Allende. And San Miguel de Allende is one of the most elegant colonial towns in the heart of Mexico. The Dragones were already four generations of Spaniards living in, in the New Spain. And they were a little bit tired of all the changes in the Bourbonic crown, as well as all the taxes that they had to pay into the crown. So they masterminded the movement of Mexican independence from San Miguel de Allende. The mm-hmm. first conspirational meeting happened there in San Miguel. And because we're doing something, we're trying to be rebels in our own category, we got really inspired by the rebellious spirit and spirit of independence. And my uh, my business partner, Bob Pittman, has a house in San Miguel de Allende that actually was the stables of the dragoons. And as a nod to that indi- independent ethos, uh, you have the number 16 on your logo, which was the the date of independence, uh, September 16th, 1810. Yes. And as well, as a coincidence, that's the actual address of the house is Recreo 16. And the color of our box is actually the color of their flag. And and it has these tones of blue that that's where we got the inspiration. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Berta Gonzalez Nieves, co-founder of the tequila company Casa Dragones. Casa Dragones is known for its small batched Hoven tequila, which uses 100% blue agave grown in the region of Tequila Jalisco, Mexico. Mexico. Berta grew up in, in Mexico City. Uh, you were first introduced to tequila uh, by your grandmother, your your maternal grandmother. Can you tell us about that? So my grandmother and my grandfather had an open house every Monday. So we all had lunch there. Lunches in Mexico are very like, no one misses lunches. So every Monday, everybody had their glass of tequila. So growing up, I was like, when is going to be my turn? When is going to be my turn? And I bogged and bogged and bogged and bogged until one day my grandma said, okay, that's it. It's such a family occasion, you know, to drink tequila as an aperitif before a family meal uh, that is so ingrained in our culture. It's really part of the fabric of, our, of the Mexican culture. We like to drink tequila for 
a wide diversity of reasons. Speaking of family, uh, your family uh, is one of entrepreneurs. Uh, your father and his family ran a cosmetic company, which also was focused on flavors and fragrance, right? Yes. That was very exciting growing up to have the exposure to uh, my grandfather and my father and my uncle that were entrepreneurs in the cosmetics industry. And uh, they had a um, company that competed in direct sales with Avon and in retail with Maybelline and, and Max Factor. And I worked every summer there, and I had the chance to discuss with my father every type of like packaging and every type of aroma and if a shampoo worked or if a cream was better. And then he sold it when I was in my, before I turned 20. So I was very upset yeah. because I thought that I could do a career there, but I will forever be thankful that I was able to find my own passion. So how did you stumble into the business of tequila? I stumbled into the business of tequila. Um, I was selected by the Japanese government to represent Mexico in a program in Japan. And as part of my training, I got invited to visit some of the top Mexican industries to be able to speak about them eloquently. And one was a tequila category. Mm. So I spent a couple of days in Tequila Jalisco. And after that, after the second day, I called my parents and I say, I know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go into the tequila industry. And they were like, <laughs> they were like, OK, you know, early 20s, maybe flavor of the month. We'll see. And it was not the flavor of the month. Well, thank you, Japan. <laughs> thank you, Japan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you eventually got to the United States. You, you got an MBA uh, from Northwestern Business School. Uh, and after business school, you worked for Grupo Cuervo, which makes Jose Cuervo tequilas. And you were with them for a decade yes. or so, um, where you basically learned the ropes of, of tequila. And when you said, OK, I want to start a tequila company, uh, how did you find Bob Pittman or how did he find you to, um, you know, to go into this together? How did you meet? Um, we met in a party in Williamsburg. Brooklyn. Uh, in Brooklyn in, uh, with uh, common friends that were celebrating their 10th year anniversary. Here I am in a, you know, in a terrace in Brooklyn and I'm talking to the founder of MTV. She's like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm in the tequila industry. What do you do? Oh, let me tell you, I have, this, I have all these ideas. I've always wanted to produce a tequila. Let's sit down and talk. And you know, in New York, you never know. Mm-hmm. So um, two weeks later, we were in his office talking about tequila. And his passion, determination, entrepreneurial nature, and understanding of the Mexican culture really took me by surprise. So he had at the time his house in San Miguel de Allende? He was already spending all of his summers in San Miguel de Allende. Okay, so he, he had was street already cred. Enamored, enamored by the Mexican culture and really, really serious about tequila. Sure. What are the chances? Yeah, yeah. what are the chances? From there, uh, you know, the conversations got more formal and then... I, you know, we decided to really do this business together. So I worked on a business plan and presented it to his, to him and to his private equity firm. And that's how we got started. And uh, literally they lent me an office space in, in Bob's office. And I came in with, at the time, with my Blackberry and my notebook and they gave me a, no- a phone and, and we started from scratch. So do you feel that, that Bob's interest helped to escalate your seriousness about the pursuit? I mean, definitely that gave me another set of an engine that said, like, this could be happening. And we had the deal that if we were not going to be able to innovate and truly expand the repertoire, we were going to abandon the project. You know, in addition to Pittman, later investors include Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Frederick Fakai, Tom Freston, uh, the former CEO of Viacom, and uh, Ryan Seacrest. For me, the most intriguing uh, part of this list is Jeff Bezos of Amazon. What was surprising to you about like this roster of investors? 
everything about it was surprising to me. Having the opportunity as an entrepreneur to have access to these incredible um, executives and brilliant minds to help me craft. So has Jeff helped you in any way or has any of these people kind of given you All of them have helped me. What are examples? Uh, All of them have helped me. I mean, Tom Freston, in one of the meetings that we had, uh, he decided to give a bottle to Oprah Winfrey for her birthday. And that opened a whole new door. I can tell you, I mean, obviously starting with Bob, Bob from like the way to balance a balance sheet to like, how do you look at a business? How do you start a business? Where do you spend? Where do you don't spend? How do you uh, uh, build excitement with your team? Having um, the chance to actually pitch uh, or share our business with Jeff Bezos and having to open all of our information for him to become an investor also makes us a much stronger and viable uh, venture. So you've certainly had a lot of support um, by just the celebrity community in, in terms of being fans and also your investor base. What has been harder for you than you thought? There were some times where you like when you start and you start with 12,000 bottles and you're selling bottle per bottle to one each restaurant and one each uh, retailer. And I'm talking about Mexico and the U.S. Right. I mean, and you are with your own like tennis shoes on the street doing this. Uh, you really don't know where that's going to go, mm-hmm. you know, and especially we started uh, we started producing the best product we could deliver uh, during 2009 in the middle of the recession. For $275 a bottle. Yeah. So some people were looking at us like, do you really know what you're doing? Learning to live in that realm, learning to live uh, in that area as an entrepreneur, I think at the beginning that's a tough calibration. Who were one of your earliest supporters? Which restaurants? Yeah, one of our earliest supporters was um, Le Bernardin, Eric Repair. You know, and we continue to be very, very proud of being one of the products that they uh, that they pour there. I had the chance to meet him in a, in a school event, in a benefit in the Hamptons, where we were serving Casa Dragones, and I was going table per table serving the product, and I was able to have a conversation with him. Hmm. And then uh, he actually then paired it with chocolate truffles. So the whole exploration of actually pairing with food started with him here and with Enrique Olvera in Mexico City. Another one that we are very proud of is La Cava del Tequila in Epcot in Florida. We have Thomas Keller with Per Se. Soho House was one of our early uh, adopters. Just just going back to kind of like the early days of, of actually, you know, being out in the field and harvesting the agave, um, you brought in this maestro tequilero. His name is Benjamin Garcia, and you mentioned him before because he signs his name on the bottle just as you do, the same initials. Um, and yet he was retired, but you brought him out of retirement. Can you tell us about that? So when these was... When we were, yes, we're going to do this, the first person that I called was Benjamin. We had worked in a lot of projects together. We were actually marathon bodies. We were in different projects together, developing new products and so on. So I called him and I said, Benjamin, I have to come and see you. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, come over. So I came over and I said, I'm not leaving your house until you say yes. Mm-hmm. So in this project, we're going to have the chance to do everything with Dramnov doing. Mm-hmm. And if you're really going to retire, you need to retire with the best home run that you can do. You're this expert in tequila. I am not. Uh, so how do you teach a gringo like myself to drink good tequila? Because it has this reputation of just drinking it like lighter fluid, and that's it. How would you introduce one to the experience? I think um, it's really um, taking the time to sip and savor a product. So every time if you're in a restaurant and you ask for a tequila, 
take three, three minutes to ask your waiter or your bartender to say, where does this come from? How is it produced? And start really trying to see that category to where it's at today. Um, it starts with like just giving yourself three seconds of trying to savor what you're trying rather than being on a hurry. In our particular case, when we do a tasting, we take probably half an hour before you taste the product, just telling you how we do it and trying to like this, trying to take you through the aroma and through the visual characteristics of the product. Like wine, definitely. Connected to aroma, what kind of perfume do you wear? So much of your work is the nose. How, what do you what do you wear? I like um, very Mediterranean aromas. So I am wearing today, I'm wearing Neroli Portofino of Tom Ford. And uh, I also like uh, the green uh, uh, perfume or cologne of Hermes. So I like very light, very simple aromas that are very fresh. I don't like very sweet uh, perfumes. Actually, and when you are in production or when you are in a tasting, you can't wear any type of perfume or cream or anything. The kit that you use to train to be able to, uh, for Maestro Tequileros, mm -hmm. is a kit that has all these different aromas, and you're training your nose to be able to discover them in a product. Yeah. So that then when you can sit in a table and we all have the same vocabulary. So that exercise is very similar than in a perfume. Are you ever out there in the fields kind of uh, harvesting the heart of the tequila? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the most favorite part of this business mm -hmm. is the production process. Do I, do I spend most of my time in the fields? I don't, but that definitely is an area that I cherish and enjoy every time I'm doing it. Just the solitude of it, just like quiet. And you said you harvest in the morning or before the sun is beating. Yeah. Can you just provide a visual? It's... 5 a.m. in the morning, the sun is coming out. You have a very fresh, almost cold temperature. The noise of, of the fields and the work of the himadors that early in the morning and the smell when you're cutting and when you're harvesting is really uh, an inspiration for everything else that we do. Um, there, is th there is no machine that is involved. It's all, it's all uh, physical labor. And the people that work the fields are generations of people that have been taking care of agaves for many, many, 11 generations. It's the most romantic part of our process. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Berta Gonzalez Nieves, co-founder of Casa Dragones. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.